My wife and I enjoy a good detective show. <clears throat> one pair of such shows we enjoy are British. The earlier show chronicles one older detective and his young protege. Some years after this show's last episode in which the mentor dies, the protege had his own series. Throughout this new series, there are occasional references to the now mature de detective's old mentor. They are quick, short re re references, but to those familiar with the earlier show, each short allusion is like a broad brush stroke, bringing back to memory entire episodes and incidents all in a rush. In addition, these brief mentions, with all of their memorial freight, serve to bring a fuller meaning and illumination to the protege's current mystery, sometimes even filling in or filling out long-closed cases. Knowing this previous series thus becomes an essential part of understanding and following the newer series. In a like manner, knowing the Old Testament well is essential for following and understanding the new. Hopefully, we'll see how knowing the Old Testament helps us to appreciate how appropriate and rich is Matthew's use and interpretation of Hosea 11.1. Tonight, we'll be looking at Matthew 2.15, which can be found on page 808 of the Pew Bibles. This verse is part of the larger, larger narrative of Jesus' birth, and that is important to the overall purpose of this quote from Hosea. It is often observed that the Gospel of Matthew is the most Hebraic of the Gospels, that it was seemingly written with Jews as the primary intended audience. This is in large part because Matthew is so tightly bound to the Old Testament, showing how Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah that is the hope of Israel as expressed throughout Old Testament events and prophecy. The birth narrative of Jesus is no exception. Matthew's use of Hosea 11.1 1 helps to fill out the picture of Jesus from the Old Testament as the true Son of God. So let's read about the flight to Egypt in Matthew 2.13-15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was so to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now turn to Hosea chapter 11, found on page 757 of the Pew Bibles. Matthew 2.15 is a partial quotation from Hosea 11.1, 1, which reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We'll consider how Matthew's use of Hosea identifies Jesus as God's true obedient son, identified with his people so that he may save his people and make us adopted sons and daughters of God. First, let's look at how Matthew identifies Jesus as God's son and with God's people by being called out of Egypt. When Hosea says that out of Egypt I called my son, he is referring to the Exodus and how God, using Moses, led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and started them toward the promised land of Canaan. In Exodus 4:22-23, God instructs Moses what to say to Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. 
If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Notice two things about God's command to Pharaoh. First, God calls Israel his firstborn son. Second, that God demands the release of his firstborn son for the purpose of serving him. How is Israel God's firstborn son? We should begin with Adam. Adam is God's son insofar as Adam was made in God's image, called into being by God to know and worship him. Luke, in his genealogy of Jesus, calls Adam the son of God. However, Adam, the first created son, failed to obey God. He sinned. He became an estranged son, disinherited and removed from God's fatherly care and placed under God's wrath. But God was still faithful to his purpose, to have sons who would reflect his image and worship him. So God set out to make a people for himself, beginning with the promise to Eve of a seed, a faithful son who would redeem his people from sin and call them back to God's service and sonship. Appropriately then, Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham, the first of these sons to be called out as separate from the sinful world, and from whom God promised to make for himself a people more numerous than the stars. Throughout the Old Testament, the children, the offspring or seed of Abraham, are called the sons of the living God. Even prior to to Exodus, the Bible's emphasis is on God's calling out of faithful sons. And yet even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were sinful, unfaithful sons. The sinfulness against Joseph by his brothers was, in God's providence, the instrument by which Jacob and his children were placed by God in Egypt. In Egypt, they became bound in slavery, and as Exodus records, they cried out to God for salvation from this bondage. And what did God do in response to the cries of his firstborn son? He called Israel out of Egypt. And true to God's promise, he even executed judgment against Egypt's firstborn, while sparing Israel's firstborn by means of the blood of the Passover lambs. So Israel was redeemed from the slavery of Egypt, and the Bible tells us that in a like manner, the Passover sacrifice of Jesus on the cross frees God's people from slavery to sin and death. And God did so, as he said in Deuteronomy, because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. But this freedom was for a purpose, and that purpose, as God declares in Exodus 4.23, was so that they may serve God. But was Israel faithful to serve God? Hosea says next in 11.2 that the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Here we are reminded of the history of Israel, from their first sinful frettings and grumblings on their journey to Mount Sinai, their idolatry at Sinai, followed by all the long train of idolatrous wandering from God their father under the judges, kings, and prophets. Israel, like Adam, failed in being a true, obedient son. But God would still not abandon his people. Even in Hosea 11, we hear how God will not give up and will not again destroy Ephraim. In Hosea 13, God again declares his promise that I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Elsewhere, God promised that this 
redemption would be through a son of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God tells David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So beginning his genealogy with Abraham and going through David, Jesus is identified in the opening chapters of Matthew as the Son of God. Just as God declared Israel to be his son, so too at his baptism, Jesus is called God's beloved son. And Jesus proves he is the Son of God through his obedience, enduring the temptation in the desert, and not sinning as did Adam and Israel. Where they failed to serve God, Jesus succeeds. And just as was was Israel, Jesus also was set on a course to the Promised Land, eventually even setting his face toward Jerusalem to that awful and wonderful day when he, as the perfect Passover lamb, was slain, whose blood covered the sins of all those enslaved in Egypt, the bondage of sin and death. And because of his obedient service, he is able to make many sons and daughters in his image. This one true son is the means of the adopting of many sons of God. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, especially the promises to be faithful, obedient sons and daughters of God, called to the hope of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Because Jesus, the one true beloved son of God, the Father, was called out of Egypt, we are able to receive the spirit of adoption. Paul in Galatians 4 states it like this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Finally, a couple points of application. First, for unbelievers. All of us, all men and women, are by nature sons of Adam. And because of Adam's sin, we are all by nature sinful and under God's wrath. We are all in bondage and slavery to sin and death. And unless God calls us out, we cannot and will not free ourselves. Israel was called out of Egypt by means of the blood of the first Passover lambs, protecting them from the pouring out of God's wrath on sin. And Jesus was the true perfect Passover lamb called out by God the Father to be the perfect sacrifice, whose blood is the only means of satisfying God's wrath for your sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, cry out for freedom from the bondage of sin. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Receive him, and you will be given the right to become a child of God. And for believers, Israel was called out of Egypt to serve God, to be a holy nation, and to inherit a promised land. We too are called to press on toward the goal of the, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And yet we continue to struggle with indwelling sin and with a hostile world. How can we take courage and endurance from Jesus being called out of Egypt? First, let's not forget the spiritual aspect of Jesus called out of Egypt. As the divine son, as God, 
His substantial presence has always been with his people. This is why his people were preserved under slavery in Egypt and exile in Babylon. Despite their sin and rebelliousness, despite the envy of Satan, and despite the hatred of the nations. We can see this most clearly in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-6, where Paul tells us that Jesus was the spiritual sustenance sustaining the people in their wilderness wandering. Christ was the spiritual rock of his own people even before his flesh was made manifest in the incarnation. By means of this preservation of his people, Jesus even identifies not just as the fulfillment of God's promise to have a faithful, obedient seed, a true son, but also as one of Israel. He is, as was said to David in 2 Samuel 5, of their bone and flesh. He was conceived by the immediate power of God and so free from the stain of original sin in Adam, but he was still born of Mary, an Israelite woman. God preserved his chosen people in the bondage of Egypt and in the exile in Babylon so that from this preserved people, Jesus' own human nature was derived. In this sense, too, Jesus was called out of Egypt when, when Israel was. He is truly the offspring of Abraham and the son of David. So for Matthew to say that when, G, when, when Jesus returned to... So, when, so for Matthew to say that when Jesus returned to Nazareth, it was the fulfillment of God's calling his people Israel out of Egypt... We should see just how appropriately this is applied. Jesus being called out of Egypt is not just a convenient, coincidental, geographical experience shared with Israel. This is not just a bare recapitulation or a made-up theatrical prop marking only a superficial connection between Jesus and his people. For Jesus was indeed called out of Egypt, for he was with his people even when they were called out. And the one who was with Israel in spirit, as they passed through the sea, and as they were fed by his power, he who who preserved his people, even he, the Son of God, finally came out of Egypt in the flesh. No more types and shadows, no no more pregnant prophecies, but the fulfillment of all prophecies and hopes at last. So when Paul, before Herod Agrippa in Acts 26, speaks of the hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, It is more than just a hope-filled promise. It is also a proof-filled reflection. It is a hope founded on what has already been proven by God in the redeeming of his people. I forgot the last page. Uh, See if I can remember. Uh, So we can also take comfort in the fact that Jesus came before us. He came before us insofar as the divine son he covenanted with the father to make a people for himself. He is with us just as he was with Israel, preserving them and making his own body out of them. And he has even gone before us into heaven to prepare for us a home. He came before us, he is with us, he has gone before us, and he has sent his spirit, even the spirit of adoption, to witness to our spirits that we are children of God. Ah. And so hopefully that is something that we can take comfort and courage from as we think about all the ways in which 
Just being called, that phrase of being called out of Egypt is one of the richest phrases in the Old Testament that is used in the New Testament. And uh, we're just scratching the the surface. Uh, But hopefully that will be a way for us to recognize just how much uh, Jesus is with his people all the way to glory.